Welcome everybody to History Analyzed. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. This is a podcast which examines historical events and issues. The issue we're analyzing today, the atomic bomb. Since this is a long and complicated topic, I've broken down this episode into two parts. So, let's proceed with part one of the atomic bomb. In the summer of 1939, physicist Leo Szilard prepared a letter to President Franklin Roosevelt. But Leo Szilard did not put his name as the author of the letter. He knew that for the president to take the letter seriously, it would have to be signed by the most famous scientist in the world. So on August 2, 1939, Leo Szilard and fellow physicist Edward Teller drove out to Peconic, Long Island to meet with Albert Einstein. They told Einstein why they were there and showed him the letter. He read it over, agreed, and signed it. The main part of the letter advised the president that it might become possible to set up a nuclear chain reaction by which vast amounts of power would be released. The letter further warned that this new phenomenon would lead to the construction of bombs and that a single bomb of this type, carried by a boat and exploded in a port, might very well destroy the whole port together with some of the surrounding territory. The letter also warned that Germany might be working on a nuclear chain reaction. The letter recommended that the U.S. government secure a supply of uranium ore and provide funds and coordinate the work of the physicists who were exploring atomic energy. Essentially, this letter started the Manhattan Project, the program to build the first atomic weapons. Almost exactly six years after the date of that letter, atomic bombs were dropped on two cities in Japan, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In 1947, Einstein stated in an article in Newsweek magazine that he regretted signing that letter. He was quoted as saying, Had I known that the Germans would not succeed in producing an atomic bomb, I would never have lifted a finger. By the end of World War II, the Western Allies discovered that the Germans never got close to developing atomic weapons. One reason for this was their insane racial policies, which drove so many brilliant physicists from Europe before the war. Great minds like Einstein, Leo Szilard, Edward Teller, and others had fled to America to escape the deranged racial policies of the Nazis. I think Einstein was wrong with his regrets. Of course the world would be better if nuclear weapons did not exist. I don't think any rational person would argue against that. But as the saying goes, hindsight is 2020. In August 1939, World War II was clearly on the horizon. In fact, the war broke out one month later, on September 1, 1939, when Germany invaded Poland. What would have happened if the fears of Leo Szilard were realized and the Nazis had developed nuclear weapons. Fortunately for the world, Hitler did not think much about atomic research. The Germans never even got to the point of producing a nuclear chain reaction. In case you're wondering about the Japanese, they never seriously considered developing atomic weapons. I shudder to imagine what the Nazis would have done with nuclear weapons, especially considering that they developed rockets like the V-2. Does anybody believe that Hitler and all of his psychotic henchmen would have hesitated to use atomic bombs indiscriminately? If the Germans had developed atomic weapons before the United States, 
it would have meant a Nazi victory and all of Hitler's psychotic plans for world domination and extermination of entire peoples would have been realized. The world was lucky that so many of these top European physicists happened to be Jewish and came to the United States in the 1930s. Instead of working for the Nazis, these geniuses helped the U.S. I've mentioned their names, so now let's take a quick look at some of these men who were influential in developing the atomic bomb. Let's start with Leo Szilard. He was born in Budapest, Hungary, and studied physics in Berlin. When Hitler rose to power, Szilard moved to England, where he developed his theory of a nuclear chain reaction. He moved to New York, and in 1940 became an American citizen. Eugene Wigner was another Hungarian-born physicist. In the 1930s, he moved to the U.S. to escape the Nazis. His specialty was atomic nuclei. Edward Teller was also Hungarian-born. Like Szilard, Teller studied physics in Germany. He moved to England and in 1935 moved to the U.S. He's now primarily known in history as the father of the hydrogen bomb. That was a much more powerful version of a nuclear explosive, which was developed by the U.S. in 1952. Enrico Fermi was born and raised in Italy. In 1936, he discovered the statistical laws which are now known as the Fermi statistics. Fermi was not Jewish, but fortunately for the world, he married a Jewish woman, which caused him to leave Europe and move to the U.S. in 1938. He was instrumental throughout the Manhattan Project and is mostly noted for a series of experiments below the stadium at the University of Chicago, which led to the atomic pile and the first controlled nuclear chain reaction. As you can see, a lot of the key physicists on the Manhattan Project were Europeans that escaped the Nazis. But the man in charge of developing the atom bomb for the U.S. was a native-born American named Robert Oppenheimer. When the Manhattan Project was fully launched in the fall of 1942, Oppenheimer was already considered one of the top theoretical physicists in the world. He was placed in charge of the Los Alamos Laboratory in New Mexico and was the director of the Nuclear Weapons Project. In addition to all of these scientific masterminds, there was one other key figure in the Manhattan Project, General Leslie Groves. Although he was not a physicist, Groves did have an engineering background. He studied first at MIT and then transferred to West Point. When he graduated from the U.S. Military Academy, he entered the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. He was the person who oversaw the entire Manhattan Project. Robert Oppenheimer was the one in charge of developing the bomb. But Leslie Groves was the person who assembled the crucial links between government, industry, science, and the military. The Manhattan Project cost approximately $2 billion. People usually think it was the most expensive program of World War II for the U.S., but it wasn't. The development of the B-29 Super Fortress bomber cost approximately $3 billion. That was the largest bomber plane built until that time. It had a tremendous range of approximately 3,500 miles. You're going to hear a lot more about the B-29 in detail later on for two reasons. Number one, it was the plane that devastated Tokyo and most of Japan with the firebombing campaign of 1945. Number two, it was the plane that delivered the two atomic bombs. Before we get into what it was, 
The first question is, why this program was called the Manhattan Project. Many people today think it's a misnomer because most of the critical work was conducted in New Mexico and other places around the U.S. far from New York City. But the first offices for the program were located at 270 Broadway in Manhattan, and there were several other facilities in Manhattan utilized for the early stages of this venture. General Leslie Groves named this atomic enterprise the Manhattan Project, because it was the custom of the Army Corps of Engineer districts to be named for the city where they were located. What was the Manhattan Project? Simply stated, it was the American program during World War II to develop nuclear weapons. Although this was an American program, the U.S. was assisted by the United Kingdom as well as Canada. Britain had actually started nuclear work before the U.S., that August 1939 letter drafted by Leo Szilard and signed by Albert Einstein to Franklin Roosevelt delivered results. By the time FDR read that letter, World War II was already raging in Europe as well as Asia. Roosevelt set up an advisory committee on uranium to investigate the issues raised in the Einstein signed letter. That committee met with key scientists including Leo Szilard, Eugene Wigner, and Edward Teller. The advisory committee reported back to FDR that uranium would provide a possible source of bombs with a destructiveness vastly greater than anything now known. I'm not going to spend much time describing the workings of atomic bombs. Frankly, it's way beyond my area of expertise. I've read several books on the subject, some of which describe in great detail how these bombs work. I still only understand the vague generalities. These first atomic bombs were created by nuclear fission. That means splitting atomic nuclei. When a single free neutron strikes the nucleus of an atom of radioactive material like uranium or plutonium, it knocks two or three more neutrons free. Those neutrons strike other nuclei of radioactive material atoms, splitting those nuclei and the process repeats. This is what is called a chain reaction. This chain reaction happens instantaneously and releases tremendous amounts of energy, which creates the explosion. The first step in this nuclear program occurred in early 1940, when Columbia University was awarded $6,000 in funding. That would be the equivalent of about $125,000 in today's money. Enrico Fermi and Leo Zillard spent most of that grant money on graphite. Fermi is the person who figured out that graphite would work best for a controlled chain reaction. The graphite bricks act as a moderator. The graphite reduces the speed of neutrons and allows a chain reaction to be sustained. The first nuclear chain reaction occurred under the football field at the University of Chicago on December 2, 1942. This was one year after the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, and the United States had joined World War II. Although a lot of scientific research was still necessary, the nuclear weapons program had essentially become an engineering undertaking. By that, I mean that the physicists had figured out the science and proved the theories. Now they needed to develop means to create enough usable radioactive material and the processes to create the explosions. 
The Manhattan Project proceeded with two types of atomic bombs, one based upon uranium and one based upon plutonium, particularly the isotopes uranium-235 and plutonium-239. Why did the Manhattan Project develop both uranium and plutonium bombs? Scientists in the Manhattan Project understood that uranium-235 was the most likely source of a nuclear detonation. The problem was accumulating enough of that isotope. Only about 7% of natural uranium is the isotope uranium-235. The most common uranium isotope is uranium-238, but it was not considered suitable for a nuclear weapon. In 1942, General Leslie Groves selected a sparsely populated area of Oak Ridge, Tennessee to build a massive facility to enrich uranium to create the isotope uranium-235. By the end of the war, over 80,000 people were working at the Oak Ridge facility. What about plutonium as a basis for an atom bomb? Although uranium was discovered in the late 1700s, plutonium was a new element. Plutonium was only discovered in December 1940 at the University of California at Berkeley. By the way, it was named plutonium after the ninth planet Pluto since the two previously discovered elements, uranium and neptunium, were named after the seventh and eighth planets in our solar system, Uranus and Neptune. And before anybody has a fit, I'm aware that in 2006, the International Astronomical Union issued a ruling that Pluto was no longer considered a planet, but is now one of the several dwarf planets in our solar system. But in 1940, Pluto was still designated as a planet. Anyway, back to plutonium. Plutonium is considered a man-made element. It's true that scientists have found trace elements of naturally occurring plutonium, but only under extremely rare geologic situations. Thus, as one of the first steps in the Manhattan Project, enough plutonium, specifically the isotope plutonium-239, had to be created. Plutonium has an atomic number of 94, and uranium has an atomic number of 92. Atomic numbers are the number of protons in the nucleus of an atom. To create plutonium, scientists use a reactor to add two protons to uranium. I do not understand how this is done. The part I do grasp is that scientists can take the type of uranium which is not the proper isotope for a chain reaction, but convert it into plutonium which is suitable for a chain reaction. Starting in late 1942, General Leslie Groves oversaw the construction of a plutonium production complex in Hanford, Washington. There were other facilities scattered around the U.S. for the Manhattan Project, but the big three were Oak Ridge to produce uranium-235, Hanford to produce plutonium-239, and the actual facility for the scientists to design an atom bomb. Robert Oppenheimer owned a ranch in New Mexico and suggested New Mexico as a place to build the laboratory complex. In the fall of 1942, a large plot of land at Los Alamos, which is northwest of Santa Fe, was purchased to build the facility. As I mentioned earlier, at the Los Alamos complex, 
Robert Oppenheimer and his crew developed two types of atom bombs, one based on uranium and the other based on plutonium. Why did they develop two types of atomic bombs? The uranium bomb was much simpler. It was described as a gun-type bomb, which fired a mass of uranium-235 at another mass of uranium-235. This created the explosion. Since it was simpler, why not just go with the uranium-type weapon? It's because it was difficult to find or create sufficient amounts of uranium-235. Scientists could create plutonium much easier, including the important isotope of plutonium-239, as they were doing in the nuclear reactors in Hanford, Washington. The gun-type bomb would not create a nuclear explosion using plutonium. So scientists at the Los Alamos facility developed the implosion-type bomb. That means using explosive charges to compress a sphere of plutonium very rapidly to a density sufficient to make it reach critical mass and produce a nuclear explosion. Apparently, this was a much more difficult device than the gun-type bomb used for uranium. Although it was the more complicated device, the fact that they could produce plutonium much easier than weapons-grade uranium made a plutonium bomb a lot more attractive. Robert Oppenheimer's team at Los Alamos was positive that the uranium-based bomb would work. They were so sure of it that they didn't even test a uranium-based bomb before they used it on Hiroshima. The scientists at Los Alamos were not as positive about the plutonium bomb, so they decided to test it. The code name for the nuclear test was Trinity. The test occurred at the bombing range near Alamogordo Army Airfield in New Mexico. The plutonium-based test weapon was nicknamed the Gadget. It was exploded early in the morning, matter of fact, before sunrise, on July 16, 1945. The test was a complete success. The world had entered the atomic age. Among the many observers of the Trinity test were Enrico Fermi, General Leslie Groves, and the mastermind of the project, Robert Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer later recalled that the explosion made him think of a verse from the Hindu holy book, the Bhagavad Gita. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. The gravity of the situation was not lost on Oppenheimer or, presumably, any of the other people who witnessed the giant mushroom cloud in New Mexico that day. What was Japan's military situation in July 1945? They had no allies. Nazi Germany and fascist Italy had already unconditionally surrendered. Japan still controlled large amounts of the Asian mainland, primarily in China and Korea, and sections of South Asia. They still had millions of soldiers, but Japan's defenses had been shattered. Early in the war, Japan controlled a vast network of islands which were supposed to provide picket outposts to defend the home islands. The idea was that air or naval battles could occur in the Pacific far from Japan. However, the U.S. Navy had conducted an island-hopping campaign across the Central Pacific. Some Japanese-held islands were invaded and conquered. 
Other islands with Japanese garrisons were simply bypassed. The expression was that these supposed pickets were left to wither on the vine. The Japanese soldiers left on those island outposts were completely cut off from the rest of the Japanese military. They were unable to get any supplies of food or ammunition. Why were they so isolated? It's because by July 1945, the U.S. Navy had complete control of the Pacific Ocean. In December 1941, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, the Japanese had the dominant navy in the Pacific. To bomb Pearl Harbor, they sent six fleet carriers. That means the large aircraft carriers, which were the dominant ships of World War II. By the summer of 1945, the Japanese Navy was essentially gone. In contrast, the American Navy had become the largest the world had ever seen. As an example, the U.S. had three aircraft carriers in the Pacific in December 1941. By the time Japan surrendered in August 1945, the U.S. had 99 aircraft carriers. 71 of those were the smaller escort-type carriers, but there were also 28 fleet carriers, which were the large aircraft carriers like the famous USS Enterprise. The main purpose of the island-hopping campaign was to get military bases close enough to the Japanese home islands so that the United States bombers could take the fight to Japan. As I mentioned earlier, the one military program for the United States of World War II that was more expensive than the Manhattan Project was the development of the B-29 bomber. B-29s could take off from the American air bases in the Mariana Islands of Saipan and Tinian and bomb the Japanese home islands and return to their home air bases. The B-29 was easily the most advanced bomber built through the end of World War II. Besides its range, the B-29 could hold a substantial amount of bombs. Originally, the U.S. was using conventional explosive-type bombs on Japan. These were the type of bombs that blow up buildings and things and people. This was part of the precision bombing campaign. Theoretically, precision bombing meant bombing during the day so the crews could see their targets. U.S. planes used the Norden bomb site, which was a technological marvel for the time. The idea was that they could bomb specific facilities of military importance. The distance to the four main islands of Japan from the forwardmost U.S. air bases was far too great for any planes other than B-29s. This meant that the bombers could not have fighter planes to escort them and protect the B-29s. To avoid being shot down, the B-29s flew at very high altitudes. But high altitude bombing meant that the bombs were blown all over the place by the jet stream. In World War II, the jet stream was not fully understood. But American bombing crews saw that dropping bombs at 30,000 feet meant that the high winds scattered their bombs all over the place. Another weather problem for precision bombing was the frequent cloud cover over Japan. As a result of the jet stream winds and cloud cover, the high altitude conventional bombing by the US was hitting their targets less than 10% of the time. Clearly, this wasn't working. 
That's why when General Curtis LeMay took over the bombing of Japan program in January 1945, he decided to change tactics. Here were his changes. Number one, B-29s would fly at 7,000 feet instead of 30,000 feet. This avoided the winds of the jet stream, which were scattering bombs everywhere. Number two, Flying at 7,000 feet exposed B-29s to Japanese fighter planes, so the B-29s would fly at night. This worked very well. American bombers met with little resistance from fighters when conducting air raids at night. Change number three. Since they were avoiding Japanese fighters, the B-29s were stripped of non-essentials, including guns and gunners, to be able to carry more bombs. And change number four. The most important innovation was changing from explosive bombs to inflammatory munitions. With fire bombs, the crews did not have to aim at a specific target. The idea was to drop incendiaries in the middle of an urban area and set the city ablaze. I've always been amazed that so many people have so much angst over the two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, yet never seem concerned about the firebombing operation. I'm not saying that the nuclear bombs were not horrific weapons which still hang over our heads today. All I'm pointing out is that the American campaign of incendiary bombing of Japan was much more devastating and killed many more people. And do you know what was in those incendiary bombs? Napalm. That's right, napalm. When you think of napalm, you always think of Vietnam. But napalm was first being used in World War II. And in case you don't know what it is, napalm is a mixture of a gelling agent with a volatile fuel, usually gasoline. It was like explosive jelly. When the bomb would explode, it would send napalm in all directions, lighting the whole area on fire. Napalm burns at temperatures over 1,600 degrees Fahrenheit, over 1,600 degrees, and it was sticky. Napalm would adhere to just about everything, even vertical surfaces, and napalm would also stick to human beings. Let's describe the most destructive bombing raid in history. It was called Operation Meeting House. On March 9, 1945, 334 B-29s took off from air bases in the Mariana Islands heading for Tokyo. After midnight, which made it March 10, 1945, those planes dropped 1,667 tons of napalm-filled incendiary bombs on the Japanese capital. We don't have exact figures, but somewhere over 100,000 people were killed in that one bombing raid. This was the highest death toll of any air raid during World War II. That one firebombing raid of Tokyo in March 1945 killed more people than either of the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima or Nagasaki. As a comparison, the bombing of Dresden, Germany a month earlier had resulted in around 25,000 deaths. The firebombing of Tokyo that night destroyed 16 square miles of the city. That is an enormous area. It is also estimated that approximately 1 million people were rendered homeless from this aerial attack. This firestorm in Tokyo was truly hell on earth. 
Consider these conditions in Tokyo during the firestorm of March 10, 1945. Temperatures on the ground reached an incomprehensible 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit in some locations. The intense fires sucked the oxygen out of the air, asphyxiating those people who did not simply burn to death. The clothes people were wearing literally burst into flames from the heat. Glass and windows began to liquefy. Cyclone-type winds from the firestorm blew the liquefied glass everywhere, and it fell onto people like a literal rain of fire. For some reason, so many people have a lot of misgivings over the atomic bombs, but no qualms over these napalm raids which killed more people. In the event I just described was one raid on one city. American planes in 1945 firebombed more than 60 Japanese cities, killing hundreds of thousands of Japanese. When the Trinity test proved that the plutonium bomb would work, on July 16, 1945, President Truman was at the Potsdam Conference outside of Berlin. This was a meeting between Truman, Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin, and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Actually, during the Potsdam Conference, Churchill was notified that his party lost the British elections and he was no longer Prime Minister. Clement Attlee came to Potsdam to replace Churchill for the remainder of the conference. When Truman received word that the atomic test in New Mexico had been a success, he told the British because we were very close allies. About a week into the Potsdam Conference, on July 24, 1945, Truman told Joseph Stalin in a very casual manner that the U.S. had a new weapon of unusual destructive force. The Soviet dictator did not appear surprised at all. He merely told Truman that he hoped that America would make good use out of it. We later learned that Stalin knew all about the Manhattan Project because he had Soviet spies in the U.S. The Potsdam Conference was the last of the so-called Big Three meetings of the U.S., Britain, and the Soviet Union. The most significant item from the Potsdam Conference relating to today's topic was the ultimatum directed to Japan on behalf of the governments of the U.S., Britain, and and China dated July 26, 1945. The USSR was not included in that ultimatum because, as of that date, the Soviets were still at peace with Japan. The declaration contained 13 points outlining the opportunity for Japan to end World War II. The first five points of the Potsdam Declaration were preliminary. Items 6 through 13 listed the specific terms for surrender, which read as follows. Item 6. There must be eliminated for all time the authority and influence of those who have deceived and misled the people of Japan into embarking on world conquest, for we insist that a new order of peace, security, and justice will be impossible until irresponsible militarism is driven from the world. Item 7. Until such a new order is established, and until there is convincing proof that Japan's war-making power is destroyed, points in Japanese territory to be designated by the Allies shall be occupied to secure the achievement of the basic objectives we are here setting forth. Item 8. 
The terms of the Cairo Declaration shall be carried out and Japanese sovereignty shall be limited to the islands of Honshu, Hokkaido, Kyushu, and Shukoku and such minor islands as we determine. Item 9. The Japanese military forces, after being completely disarmed, shall be permitted to return to their homes with the opportunity to lead peaceful and productive lives. Item 10. We do not intend that the Japanese shall be enslaved as a race or destroyed as a nation, but stern justice shall be meted out to all war criminals, including those who have visited cruelties upon our prisoners. The Japanese government shall remove all obstacles to the revival and strengthening of democratic tendencies among the Japanese people. Freedom of speech, of religion, and of thought, as well as respect for the fundamental human rights, shall be established. Item 11. Japan shall be permitted to maintain such industries as will sustain her economy and permit the exaction of just reparations in kind, but not those industries which would enable her to rearm for war. To this end, access to, as distinguished from control of raw materials, shall be permitted. Eventual Japanese participation in world trade relations shall be permitted. Item 12. The occupying forces of the Allies shall be withdrawn from Japan as soon as these objectives have been accomplished and there has been established, in accordance with the freely expressed will of the Japanese people, a peacefully inclined and responsible government. And finally, item 13. We call upon the government of Japan to proclaim now the unconditional surrender of all the Japanese armed forces and to provide proper and adequate assurances of their good faith in such action. The alternative for Japan is prompt and utter destruction. Item number 8 of the Potsdam Declaration references the Cairo Declaration. A conference was held in Cairo, Egypt in November 1943 involving Franklin Roosevelt on behalf of the U.S., Winston Churchill on behalf of Britain, and Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek of the Republic of China. The Soviet Union was not represented at that conference. The three allies at Cairo issued a joint declaration directed to Japan, which read as follows. The several military missions have agreed upon future military operations against Japan. The three great allies express their resolve to bring unrelenting pressure against their brutal enemies by sea, land, and air. This pressure is already rising. The three great allies are fighting this war to restrain and punish the aggression of Japan. They covet no gain for themselves and have no thought of territorial expansion. It is their purpose that Japan shall be stripped of all the islands in the Pacific which she has seized or occupied since the beginning of the First World War in 1914, and that all the territories Japan has stolen from the Chinese, such as Manchuria, Formosa, the Pecadores, shall be restored to the Republic of China. Japan will also be expelled from all other territories which she has taken by violence and greed. The aforementioned three great powers, mindful of the enslavement of the people of Korea, are determined that in due course, Korea shall become free and independent. 
With these objects in view, the three allies, in harmony with those of the United Nations at war with Japan, will continue to persevere in the serious and prolonged operations necessary to procure the unconditional surrender of Japan. What all of this meant was that by July 26, 1945, the Japanese had been advised of the specific items for surrender. After the surrender of Germany, the Japanese contacted members of the Soviet government to see if the USSR would act as an intermediary for a possible settlement of the war between the U.S. and Japan. These attempts went nowhere because Joseph Stalin had no intention of facilitating an end to the war in the Pacific. I'll explain why. People think of World War II as two basic sides. You have the Allies on one side, comprised of the U.S., Britain, the Soviet Union, and China. And on the other side, you have the Axis powers of Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, and Fascist Italy. There were some other minor countries on each side, but these were the main ones. Remarkably, the Soviet Union and Japan were not at war with each other until August of 1945. This is amazing since they shared a large land border because Japan had annexed the Manchuria region of China in 1931. But both Japan and the USSR felt it was advantageous to leave each other alone. In April 1941, the Japanese and the Soviets signed a neutrality pact. They pledged not to fight each other for five years. This meant that while they were fighting each other's allies, Japan and the Soviet Union did not fight each other. This allowed Japan to concentrate on expanding southward, eventually leading to conflict with the U.S. and the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Why am I bringing this up? A conference was held in Tehran, Iran from November 28 through December 1, 1943. At that meeting, U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill met with Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin. At that conference, Stalin verbally promised Roosevelt and Churchill that the USSR would join the war against Japan once Germany was defeated, but there were no details. This was remedied at the next so-called Big Three conference, which occurred in February 1945 at Yalta. That's a city on the Crimean Peninsula in the Black Sea, which at that time was part of the Soviet Union. It was clear that Germany was close to defeat, but that Japan might hold out for a long time. In February 1945, it was unknown whether the atomic weapons would work. So the concern of the Western Allies was how to defeat Japan after Germany surrendered. At the Yalta Conference in February 1945, FDR pressed Stalin to a specific commitment of going to war against Japan once Germany was defeated. Stalin agreed to wage war in Japan within three months of the surrender of Germany. VE Day, meaning victory in Europe, was May 8, 1945. This meant that the Soviets were pledged to fight Japan by August 8, 1945. For once, Joseph Stalin was true to his word. On August 8, 1945, the USSR declared war on Imperial Japan. Now, some people are under the delusion that the Soviets declared war on Japan just because Stalin was fulfilling a promise to America and Britain. That was definitely not it. 
Stalin was a monster who only did things that were in his best interests. Stalin wanted to get into the Pacific War to gain territories. What does the Soviet Union declaring war against Japan have to do with the atom bomb? A lot. By the summer of 1945, when the Truman administration knew that the atomic bomb would work, they weren't sure that they really wanted the Soviets getting into the war in Asia. Even though post-war Europe was still a complete mess, some things were clear by the summer of 1945. Joseph Stalin had no plans to cooperate with the Western allies as far as Eastern Europe was concerned. Stalin wanted the Eastern European countries to become communist satellites and to serve as a buffer region between the Western powers and the Soviet Union. If the Soviets conquered large territories in Asia, wouldn't Stalin act the same way in Asia as he had in Eastern Europe? And in case you're wondering, the answer is, of course he would. Case in point, look at the brutal regime that was set up in North Korea, which remains in effect to this day. So let's discuss the actual bombings on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. On August 6, 1945, at 2.45 a.m. local time, a B-29 bomber took off from the American air base on the island of Tinian in the Mariana Islands. The B-29 was commanded by pilot Paul Tibbets. In World War II, the aircraft commanders liked to name their planes and paint the names on the front. This plane was nicknamed the Enola Gay. It was named after the mother of Paul Tibbets. The distance between Tinian Island and Hiroshima is approximately 1,500 miles. Only a B-29 could fly that distance and return to base. But the B-29 was also necessary for this mission because it was large and could handle the extreme weight of an atomic bomb. The bomb utilized that day was a uranium device nicknamed Little Boy. Despite the name, it was actually quite large. The Little Boy bomb was 12 feet long and weighed approximately 9,000 pounds. The Enola Gay was accompanied that day by two other B-29s. One plane was there to film the explosion. The other plane was there to record measurements of the nuclear blast. It took six hours to reach the primary target city of Hiroshima. That city had a population of approximately 300,000 people. The weather was clear. Little Boy was released at 8.15 a.m. Hiroshima time from an elevation of 31,060 feet. Little Boy never hit the ground. The bomb took about 53 seconds to drop to the predetermined detonation height of 1,900 feet above the city. By the time of the explosion, the Enola Gay had traveled about 11 and a half miles before those on the B-29 felt the shock waves of the atomic blast. Ironically, before that day, people in Hiroshima had thought that they were lucky because their city had never been firebombed by the Americans. The U.S. military had excluded Hiroshima because they wanted the city to be intact so the devastation from one atomic bomb would be fully apparent. The fortunate people in Hiroshima that day never knew what hit them. They were killed instantly. The unlucky ones survived the blast and died of the extreme heat caused by the nuclear explosion. And then many more would die of radiation poisoning. We do not have exact figures and there are some conflicting estimates. 
but it's believed that approximately 80,000 died on August 6, 1945 from the nuclear detonation over Hiroshima. Tens of thousands more would die of radiation poisoning. Two days after the obliteration of Hiroshima, the USSR declared war on Japan. That was on August 8th. Just after midnight local time on August 9th, the Red Army attacked the Japanese Army in Manchuria. Also occurring on August 9, 1945, America dropped the second atomic bomb. This was a nuclear device using plutonium. This bomb had been nicknamed Fat Man. So many people know the name of the B-29 which delivered the bomb on Hiroshima, the Enola Gay, but hardly anybody remembers the name of the B-29 that dropped the atomic bomb on Nagasaki. That B-29 had the nickname of Boxcar. That's spelled B-O-C-K-S-C-A-R. It was a play on words, like a railroad boxcar, but spelled differently because it was first commanded by Captain Frederick Bach. On the atomic mission of August 9th, it wasn't Frederick Bach that was in command. The plane was piloted by Major Charles Sweeney. You know, we forget how young some of these guys were. Major Sweeney was only 25 years old when he commanded the mission to drop the second atomic bomb. Like the Enola Gay three days before, Boxcar was accompanied by two other B-29s to film the event and take measurements. Nagasaki was on the list of four target cities because it was a large seaport and had a lot of military-related industries. But the target city for the Fat Man bomb was not Nagasaki. When Boxcar lifted off from the airbase on Tinian Island at 3.47 a.m. local time on August 9th, the target was Kokura. Boxcar and the two accompanying B-29s arrived over Kokura and found that there was dense overcast of clouds and smoke from nearby fires. Commander Sweeney flew over Kokura three times, but the bombardier could not get a visual fix on the aiming point. In 1945, bombs, including atomic ones, were dropped using visual sights. So, Sweeney decided to go to the secondary target, Nagasaki. When they got to Nagasaki, the weather was clear enough for the bombardier to see his target. At 11.01 a.m. local time, Fat Man was dropped from boxcar. 47 seconds later, it exploded over the city. Fat Man was a more powerful bomb than Little Boy, but the casualty numbers at Nagasaki were less than Hiroshima because of the topography of the city. The hills of Nagasaki contained some of the nuclear blasts. Because of the extra fuel used to go to Kokura first and then Nagasaki, Boxcar could not make it back to Tinian Island. So Sweeney flew his plane and crew to the island of Okinawa, which had only recently been conquered by U.S. forces. Again, we only have estimates, but it's believed that 40,000 died in Nagasaki on August 9, 1945 from the nuclear blast. As with Hiroshima, additional tens of thousands later died of radiation poisoning. So, after two atomic bombs in three days, the Japanese instantly surrendered, right? Surely the nuclear weapons, along with the attack of the massive Red Army, convinced the Japanese that they would surrender immediately. Wrong. The government of Japan knew where it stood. The terms for surrender had been laid out in the Potsdam Declaration, which I read to you earlier. President Truman 
issued a broadcast on August 6th after the first atomic weapon had been dropped on Hiroshima. Here are the pertinent parts of Truman's broadcast. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many-fold, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. In their present form, these bombs are now in production, and even more powerful forms are in development. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. We are now prepared to destroy more rapidly and completely every productive enterprise the Japanese have in any city. We shall destroy their docks, their factories, and their communications. Let there be no mistake we shall completely destroy Japan's power to make war. It was to spare the Japanese people from utter destruction that the ultimatum of July the 26th was issued at Potsdam. Their leaders promptly rejected that ultimatum. If they do not now accept our terms, they may expect a reign of ruin from the air, the like of which has never been seen on this earth. So why didn't Japan immediately surrender? because of the political structure running the country at that time. Here was the situation. Decisions such as whether or not to surrender had to be made by the Supreme Council for the direction of the war. This council had been created in 1944 and consisted of the Prime Minister, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, the Minister of the Army, the Minister of the Navy, Chief of the Army General Staff, and Chief of the Navy General Staff. This council is usually referred to as the Big Six. The Supreme Council met on August 9th. At that point, they knew of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and that the Soviet Union had declared war the night before. During the meeting, they were advised that another atomic bomb had been dropped on Nagasaki. Remarkably, the news of two atomic bombs and the Soviet entry into the war did not convince the Big Six to immediately surrender. They were split three to three about whether or not to keep fighting or whether to surrender. The three members of the Supreme Council who wished to surrender were the Prime Minister, Foreign Minister Togo, and Minister of the Navy, Admiral Yunai. They were willing to accept the Potsdam Declaration provided that Japan could keep its emperor. The other three members of the Big Six were Minister of the Army, General Anami, Chief of the Army General Staff, General Umetsu, and Chief of the Navy General Staff, Admiral Toyota. Those three members of the Supreme Council would only agree to surrender with these four conditions. Number one, the Emperor would remain as head of state. Number two, Japan would handle its own disarmament. Number three, any Japanese accused of war crimes would be tried by the Japanese themselves in Japan. And number four, there would be no occupation of Japan. It was clear that the Allies would not accept those terms. 
So the military leaders proposed to continue fighting until the U.S. and its allies would agree to those four conditions. Under the Japanese governing system, the big six of the Supreme Council could only act when they were unanimous. As I just explained, the big six were split three to three. Kantaro Suzuki had only become prime minister in April 1945 when he was 77 years old. Suzuki understood that the only way to break the 3-3 deadlock of the Supreme Council was to involve the emperor. There is still debate to this day as to how much of a role Emperor Hirohito had in the events of World War II, but we know he got involved in this matter. Prime Minister Suzuki thought direct intervention by Emperor Hirohito was necessary. Hirohito agreed. The Imperial Conference was called late at night on August 9 that went past midnight into August 10th. Attending this meeting were the so-called Big Six of the Supreme Council and the Emperor. Hirohito broke the 3-3 tie. He sided with the Prime Minister, the Foreign Minister, and the Minister of the Navy to accept the Potsdam Declaration with the caveat that the Emperor would remain as the head of Japan. The Japanese government sent this conditional surrender offer to the Allies using the Swiss as a go-between. U.S. Secretary of State James Burns drafted a reply to the Japanese conditional offer of surrender. The reply was approved by representatives of Britain, China, and the USSR. It was sent to the Japanese on August 11, 1945, again using the Swiss as a go-between. The Allies would accept the Japanese surrender, provided that the Japanese understood that the Emperor would just be ceremonial and have no power. The Allied statement to Japan on August 11 addressed this issue with the following language. With regard to the Japanese government's message accepting the terms of the Potsdam Proclamation, but containing the statement with the understanding that the said declaration does not comprise any demand which prejudices the prerogatives of his majesty as a sovereign ruler, our position is as follows. From the moment of surrender, the authority of the emperor and the Japanese government to rule the state shall be subject to the supreme commander of the allied powers who will take such steps as he deems proper to effectuate the surrender terms. The emperor will be required to authorize and ensure the signature by the government of Japan and the Japanese Imperial General Headquarters of the surrender terms necessary to carry out the provisions of the Potsdam Declaration and shall issue his commands to all of the Japanese military, naval, and air forces and to all of the forces under their control wherever located to cease active operations and to surrender their arms and to issue such other orders as the Supreme Commander may require to give effect to the surrender terms. The ultimate form of government of Japan shall, in accordance with the Potsdam Declaration, be established by the freely expressed will of the Japanese people. The armed forces of the Allied powers will remain in Japan until the purposes set forth in the Potsdam Declaration are achieved. Truman ordered no further atomic bombs or firebombings as they awaited acceptance to the August 11th statement. Hirohito told his government officials to accept the Allies' terms as set forth in that August 11th statement. The Supreme Council agreed to the Emperor's wishes. 
Hirohito recorded a speech to the Japanese people announcing the surrender. It was a very strange speech. He described Japan's condition as follows. The war situation has developed not necessarily to Japan's advantage. Talk about an understatement. Hirohito then explained, The enemy has begun to employ a new and most cruel bomb, the power of which to do damage is, indeed, incalculable, taking the toll of many innocent lives. Should we continue to fight, not only would it result in an ultimate collapse and obliteration of the Japanese nation, but also it would lead to the total extinction of human civilization. Hirohito never used the term surrender. The emperor told his subjects, We have resolved to pave the way for a grand peace for all the generations to come by enduring the unendurable and suffering what is unsufferable. There was one more crazy twist to the Japanese surrender. After Hirohito recorded the speech and ordered that it be broadcast at noon on August 15, 1945, a group of army officers launched an attempted coup d'etat. The short version of the story is this. These army officers entered the palace grounds on the night of August 14th. They planned on destroying the emperor's recorded speech thinking that would stop the actual surrender. They never did find the recorded speech and eventually realized that the coup d'etat had failed, and so they killed themselves. As I said at the beginning of this episode, this is only part one of a two-part installment regarding the atom bomb. I've now set forth what happened. In the second part of this episode, I will investigate the issues and arguments as to whether the atom bomb was necessary or justified. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Catch you next episode, which will be part two of the atomic bomb.